first time, we want to tell you how glad we are that you're here. You have come at the exact right time. We are uh, week 14 into a journey, the book of Acts. We have been kind of going verse by verse through this book, looking at it as a call and as individuals, as Christ followers. It's, it's a book that has some of the most remarkable encounters in all of Scripture, but it's more than just a storyteller, right? It's an, an invitation to come and give your life away. As a, it really is a call to follow Christ, both for the individual and for the church. And so we've made this commitment to work through it verse by verse. And I say we, by proxy, you all, because I have made this commitment to take us through it verse by verse. So we are into that journey, and we are well on our way, and it's, it's a really kind of pivotal time. We're hitting a really interesting time. The trajectory of the church is going to completely change in the next two weeks in history. So as we look at Acts, probably not next Sunday. But as we look at this, we'll see the trajectory of the church change completely. Um, so last week, we looked at all of chapter 6. Actually, we looked at the, the complete passage as a transition passage to introduce us to a few people, to give us a few kind of things to hang on to for the sole purpose of getting us to chapter 7. Because in chapter 7, everything is going to change. And chapter 6 was really the church kind of recognizing that it had some growth issues, some leadership issues, that there were needs that were being meet, need to be met. We saw the first kind of quarrel amongst the church. And so the apostles basically raised up a new set of leaders, right? Seven leaders, they laid their hands on them, they put them in, in kind of in, in places where they could serve the people. And we get introduced to a couple of key figures, one by the name of Philip, who will become important later, and the second one by the name of Stephen, who is going to be very pivotal this week and next week. We learn that Stephen, as a newly appointed leader, goes to the temple and begins to preach the good news, and he is arrested, just like what happened to the other apostles. As they're kind of up there in front and doing exactly what God has called them to do, they come and they arrest Stephen, just like they had arrested Peter and the others before that. Except they skip putting Stephen in jail this time. They drag him before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious kind of ruling court, 71-ish people that are there as, as the religious leaders, and they put him on trial. But the things get escalated a little bit because the charge against Stephen is way more serious than the charge against Peter and the other apostles. See, Peter and the other apostles were just told to quit talking about Jesus. But Stephen is accused of blasphemy against God. Now, it doesn't sound like much to you and I, but in those days, where the law was, it was punishable only by death. There was no other option. When you blasphemed against God, you were punished by death, by stoning, actually. It was a horrific way to go. And this was his accusation. And we find Stephen at the end of chapter 6 on trial for his very life, accused of being a blasphemer against God. And chapter 6 wraps up with the Sanhedrin looking at Stephen, but what they see is not an angry, falsely accused person. They see someone, as chapter 6 says, with the face of an angel. And what we talked about last week was how we are called as followers of Christ to exude Jesus, to, to allow him literally to come through us, not simply to reflect him to the watching world. The Holy Spirit dwells in us and comes out of everything that we do, and that's what we were seeing in Stephen. And we also talked about how our call as a church, much like the, the kind of picture of the first century church, is to not exchange our primary purpose, which is the, sal- the proclamation of the gospel for the salvation of mankind for the nurture and care and comfort of ourselves. We kind of explored that kind of dichotomy a little bit. So all that to get us to here. So here's my next disclaimer. 
Stephen gives an incredible history lesson. One of the greatest, his, his sort of speech sermon here is one of the greatest pictures of redemptive history in a nutshell in all of the Bible. If you ever want to get a picture of how the Old Testament gets us to Jesus, this is the redemptive picture that we're going to look at today. But the disclaimer is, is that it's long. It's 50-something verses. And I have made this commitment, right, to go through every verse. And so we're going to read through it and work through it a little bit this morning because it is really important. But I'm going to try and do it by just hitting the high notes because if we break this up, we miss the collaborative story and the story from the God of, 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 the, of the forefathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God, the creator, the God of majesty that leads us to the redemption through Christ is an incredible story and it needs to be left in its sort of entire picture. So we're going to do it quickly, but we're going to go through it as uh, Stephen lays it out. So if you've got your Bible, open to chapter 7 of the book of Acts, and we're going to look at verse 1 first, and then uh, we'll just kind of go with it. And I'm not going to read through the whole thing. Uh, I'll do it in sections. Otherwise, that just gets to be a lot of reading. So, um, But we're going to look at every verse. I'm, I, I'm committed to that. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here today. We thank you that your word is truth. God, that it is powerful, that it is redemptive, and that in it holds life because it is yours. We deeply believe and proclaim that encounter with your word is an encounter with you. We don't take these moments lightly. God, we want to understand scripture in its context. We want to understand as you speak it to our hearts. So God, I pray that as we open your word um, this morning, you would speak to each of us and you would reveal truth to us. We don't discover you. You reveal yourself to Take a moment in your own heart and just ask God to teach you this morning. That God would speak directly to your heart. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you or in front of you or behind you. Pray that God would move in them. ask this in your risen son's name, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. Okay, so we're going to try and do this relatively quickly, but Peter, or, uh, Stephen is on trial for his life. He has been called a blasphemer, and he is facing death, all right? Chapter 1, or uh, verse 1, verse 7, or chapter 7, the high priest asks him, asks Stephen, are these charges true, right? Are these charges true? And to that he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land that I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and he settled in Haran. And after the death of his father, God sent him to a land where you are now living. He gave them no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground, but God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land even though, um, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way, your descendants will be like strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterward they will come out of that country, and they will worship me in this place. And then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. So the high priest says, are these things true? 
You have been accused of blaspheming against Moses, but even more so, you've been accused of blaspheming against God. Right now, in this place, answer this question, are you guilty? Are these things true? And Stephen does something remarkable. He doesn't actually defend himself. He launches into this history lesson, which not one of us would blame him if he said, hey, listen, you are all a bunch of liars. I didn't do that, nor did I say that. Like, don't kill me, right? But he does something incredible. Instead of defending himself, he, he makes this movement towards truth. And he uses scripture as backbones. And he goes, let me tell you a little story, one that you are very familiar with. And it begins with the God of glory. Because God's redemptive plan and story begins with the God of glory. It doesn't begin with humanity. He basically says, God called Abraham, spoke to him, and told him, I am going to lead you out of this land into a land that I will show you. And that land will be inhabited by your descendants, which will number as many as the stars are in the skies. And even though you don't have children, God told Abraham, he will give him children in a miracle moment. And he said, I will bless you and you will become the father of a great nation. All right? This is the promise that God is making to Abraham. And he enters into a covenant with Abraham to say, I will keep my promise with you and your descendants. The children that come from your line will forever be my people. And so sure enough, Abraham goes. God leads him to the promised land that will later be the land that all the Israelites take up residence in. Right? He leads him to that land, and he gives him this covenant of circumcision. Now, circumcision is an outward symbol that was marked on the eighth-ish day for young boys to be able to show the rest of the world that they were different than the other nations. It was the covenant that God gave Abraham to mark his people. All right, so if you don't know what that is, ask your mom or dad. They can explain the diagram of circumcision, circumcision to you. But just know it's an outward sign that God gave Abraham to mark all of his people so that they would always know that not only am I called, I am forever marked as a child of God. Well, Abraham became the father of Isaac. Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons, and they all became the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. So from a history lesson, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, we have the 12 tribes, all right? And this is where Stephen launches. Verse 9, because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all of his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom, enabled him to gain goodwill of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And so he made him ruler over Egypt and all of his palace. And then a famine struck all of Egypt and Canaan, bringing the great suffering of our fathers because they could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers out there to visit first. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and the whole family, 75 of all, in all of them. They all, then Jacob went down to Egypt where he and his fathers died and their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had brought, uh, had bought from his sons Hamor and Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill the promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. Then another king who knew nothing about Joseph became ruler of Egypt and he dealt treacherously with our people and he oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so they would die. So one of the children of Jacob was a guy by the name of Joseph. 
and Joseph was hated by his brothers, right? You may remember this Old Testament story. They were jealous of him, well, for a lot of reasons, but God had given Joseph favor. And so what they decided they were going to do was they were going to sell Joseph into slavery. So they do that. They basically capture him. They sell him into slavery. They go back and tell Jacob, Joseph's father, all their fathers, that wild animals had torn him apart and that he was dead. And they sold Joseph into slavery, and Joseph found himself in jail, but God rescued him and had favor with him, and he raised up him in the jail, and he began to serve, and he gained kind of notoriety with the army guard, and soon enough he became leader of a lot of the army of Pharaoh, and then Pharaoh found favor with him. God's hand was all over Joseph, and Pharaoh put him in charge of almost all of Egypt. So here you have this once sold into slave guy, having given favor by God, now raised up and in charge of the palace and a whole bunch of Egypt. Well, famine strikes the land, and famines were a big deal because it was a lot of desert and there was not a lot of food. And Jacob and his sons, the 11 that were left, were starving to death in the land that God had given them. But they heard that Egypt's got a bunch of food. And so they said, we need to go down to Egypt. Well, they show up to Egypt, to Pharaoh's house, basically, and say, hey, listen, we don't have anything to eat, right? And Pharaoh says, you know, we've got some stuff. And so he sends for Jacob, and Jacob comes back with his sons, and they're all there. And they learn that Joseph, who Jacob thought was dead, and who the brothers thought most likely was dead, or at least a slave, was now in charge of all of Egypt. And you have this sort of weird reconciliation moment where they come to grips with the fact that Joseph now holds their fate, gives them a bunch of food, sends them home, and Jacob's buried there in the land that God had provided for them. Pharaoh gave great favor to Joseph and all of Jacob's family. But Pharaoh died and another Pharaoh came to be and that Pharaoh didn't even know about Joseph. He didn't even care about him. But when he looked out and he saw that this was a huge group of Israelites now that once started with 75, some estimates have said had grown to upwards of 750,000. And by the time they move out towards the Red Sea, they're going to be close to a million and a half Israelites. So they were in huge number. And the new Pharaoh looked out and said, uh, yeah, this is going to be a problem. I can't control any of these people. And I don't know who this Joseph is. He didn't even heard of him. And so he enslaved those people. Where they once found blessing living in Egypt, they are now enslaved. In fact, that Pharaoh was so afraid of them that he has all of their newborn babies, or at least the males, attempted to be killed. So God's hand is now turning on some level against the Israelites again, right? They'd left the land, headed to Egypt. They found favor. Pharaoh raised up. And now Pharaoh is angry, and he is killing basically their children. Verse 20. At that time, Moses was born. And he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his father's house. When he, uh, when he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw, saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came up on two Israelites who were fighting, and he tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the men who was, man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you judge and ruler over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. So as this killing of children was going on, 
There was no ordinary baby was born. This special baby named Moses was born. And he was able for three months to sort of be hidden in his father's house. And then finally when these Egyptian kind of army guys were coming through and killing these children, Moses' mother wrapped him in a basket and put him outside. And he was found by the daughter of Pharaoh, right, who took Moses in and raised him in their own home and educated him as an Egyptian. And he was wise and he was powerful and he lived that way. And when he was 40 years old, he went out to see his people. He knew who he was. And he went out to see his people. And he had hoped that maybe they would recognize him as the one that God was going to use. And he sees this Egyptian and this Israelite fighting. And he tries to get in and he sort of avenges his own people group. And he kills this Egyptian. Buries him in the sand, we hear in the Old Testament. Comes back the next day, sees two Israelites fighting. And instead he kind of skits with them and he's merciful. And he says, why are you fighting fight with each other, your brothers. And the one that was sort of an aggressor said, who are you that you can kill that Egyptian and then judge us? And Moses gets really afraid, right? And he just bolts, runs, hightails it for a land called uh, the Midianites, a land called Midian, where he lives for another 40 years and has a few sons and develops a family. And so Moses is out there in the desert. So after 40 years, in verse 30, had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight, and, um, and he went over to look more closely. And he heard the Lord's voice, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses trembled with fear, and he did not dare to look. And the Lord said to him, take off your sandals, a place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to set them free now come and i will send you back to egypt this is the same moses who they had rejected with their words who made you who made you ruler and judge and he was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by god himself through the angel who appeared to them in the bush and he led them out of egypt and did wondrous and miraculous signs in egypt and at the red sea and for 40 years in the desert so moses encounters god 40 years he's living out there in this land and he has this burning bush experience, which you may remember, where God spoke to him in a bush that was on fire but wasn't consumed up and said, Moses, I am the great I am, and I am going to use you to deliver my people. I have heard their cry. And Moses is thinking, this is the same people that rejected me 40 years ago, and now you're sending me back to deliver them at the age of almost 80. God sends Moses back to Egypt, and he does a bunch of miraculous, amazing signs. And he leads the people out of Egypt, right? And you remember the parting of the Red Sea and all those miraculous things that happened. And Moses leads them right to the doorstep of the promised land that God had given Abraham so many years before that. But then through their disobedience and sort of struggle, God denies them entry to the land, and for 40 years, They wander around the desert, but God doesn't forget them. He provides for them. Pillar of uh, cloud by day, fire by night, manna from heaven. God provides for his people that he had made a covenant with through Abraham. Verse 37, this is that Moses that told Israel, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He He was in the assembly in the desert when the angels spoke to him on Mount Sinai with our fathers. And he said, Uh, that he received living words to pass on to us. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron to make us gods that will go before us, as, as this fellow Moses has led us out of Egypt. We don't know what has happened to him. And this was the time they made an idol from the form of a calf, and they brought sacrifices to it, and they held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. 
This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Do you bring me sacrifices and offerings? Forty years in the deserts, O house of Israel, you have lifted up the shrine of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephim, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and he receives the living words from God. He receives the law and he's up there for 40 days. And the Israelites grow restless saying, this guy led us out of Egypt and now he's going to leave us here to die. Here's what we should do. We should form our own gods to worship and that God will lead us back to Egypt. And so they get all the gold earrings and gold jewelry from all the huge, massive, million plus assembly of people. And they put it in the fire and Aaron forms this golden calf made of pure gold and they begin to worship it. And they have sacrifices, and they engage in all kinds of detestable moral practices. Use your imagination in front of it, right? Moses comes down, and he says, what have you done? And they said, you were gone. We gave up on you and God. So we made our own God. And it says that God gave them over to the worship of these heavenly bodies. Now, God gave them over, but he had not forgot them. And then he makes this movement where he says, I am going to hand you over to your sin, and you will eventually be carried on into exile, right? Years and years and years later, the Israelites are conquered in two ways by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and they are carried out into exile, but they are still God's covenant people. Verse 44, our forefathers had the tabernacle of testimony with them in the desert. It had been made by God and directed by Moses according to the pattern they had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they, when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that they might provide a dwelling place for God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men, as the prophet said. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What kind of house could you build for me, this says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? Joshua leads, after Moses dies, leadership transition, Joshua leads them into the promised land. And they build an ark according to God's specifications where God would dwell. And they build a tabernacle or a tent where the ark would be housed. And they carried it with them everywhere. And they worshiped there. And they sacrificed there. And God's presence was with them. And then David comes along. And he has great favor with God. And he is the greatest king of Israel. And God says, no longer am I going to have this movable tent, but I, you are going to build for me a dwelling. And David's son Solomon builds the greatest kind of building or structure ever known at that point in time. And it was remarkable. And it was the house of God. But then Stephen says, but something was afoot. Something was happening. Because even the prophets were saying, a house built by the hands of men cannot contain God. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What human hands have created cannot contain me, right? And then Stephen takes a turn for the worse. And we're going to finish this reading up with this. He says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels and have not obeyed it. And the people are going to freak out, right? All those words to get us to Stephen, to look at this this gathered group of religious leaders. Remember, these are the ones 
that are in charge of all the religious life. They are the ones that trace their very heritage through these names that Stephen is using. And he said, listen, you stiff-necked people, you people that are unwilling to move, you have uncircumcised hearts and ears, saying outwardly you've been marked by God, but inwardly you have followed all these pagan nations. It was an incredible insult, basically saying you may look like God's people, but you are not God's people. And it was an incredibly offensive comment. He says, you have uncircumcised hearts and ears. And always, just like your fathers, you have rejected those that God has sent. Even the ones that came to talk about the Holy One, Jesus, and even Jesus himself whom you crucified. The law was given to you by God's very presence, and you have denied it. And this crowd is going to, of 71 folks, is going to freak, obviously. So, all those words to kind of get us to why. What is Stephen doing? All right, well, there's a couple of, of really important things I want you to see here, and then we've got some takeaways, but, but, and, and I'll do them quickly. Here's the important thing. Stephen's making about four really important points when he does this incredible redemptive history. I mean, honestly, if, if you've never read the Old Testament start to finish, right, Stephen does a pretty remarkable job getting you the picture of redemptive history here. And he does it for a bunch of people that already know it. So obviously he's doing something very intentional. The first point Stephen's making is he's saying, listen, the activity of God cannot be contained to the geographical location of Israel. And he traces that throughout this redemptive story. God called Abraham out of Mesopotamia. God gave him a land. God took him and all of Jacob's forefathers basically to Egypt. God moved there. God moved on Mount Sinai. God moved when he parted the Red Sea. God moved with Joshua. The ark went into the promised land. God's activity is more than just located in this one place. And this is going to be important because the church was expanding. The activity of God was moving beyond Jerusalem, beyond Judea. It was going into Greek-speaking nations. God's covenant people, right, has been expanded through the lineage of Christ, and the activity of God is growing. So basically, Stephen is saying, the activity of God never was to be contained in a single land, in its borders. But God's activity is being traced all throughout God's kind of picture and God's move, and it's growing. So God's activity cannot be contained in Israel. He also says the worship of God cannot be contained in a single place, like the temple in Jerusalem, right? He basically says that the hands of Solomon, by God's instruction, built this amazing things. But even the prophets testify to this fact, that God cannot be contained by things that humans have built. Right? The temple was the literally the greatest thing known in all of human history up to that point that was built. It was magnificent. And Isaiah says that the train of God's robe, I mean the throwaway part of the end of the robe of God, overflowed it. It couldn't contain God. What Stephen is doing is he's changing the definitions of worship. Right? He's basically saying that worship doesn't take place in a, in a physical location because Jesus has redefined everything. That through the death of Christ, the temple curtain has been torn in two and we have access to God. Therefore, worship begins in this temple in which the Holy Spirit dwells. It's a game changer. Jesus himself alluded to it when he met the Samaritan woman at the well back in John chapter 4. She had a question for him, and she says, Sir, the Samaritans believe that our fathers worshipped here, but the Jews tell us that we have to worship in Jerusalem. Which is right? Do we worship on this mountain, or do we worship over here? And Jesus looks at her, and he says, Listen, you don't get it. Worship isn't contained on this mountain or in Jerusalem, but a time is coming and has now come when true worship is a worship of the Father in spirit and truth. 
Jesus is turning the paradigm of worship upside down. And so basically he says, you accused me of defiling the temple. Back in chapter 6, we read that. Right? Saying that, that I was going to destroy it. You're misunderstanding. Jesus was the temple. It was destroyed and rebuilt, and therefore our definitions of worship have changed. We have access to God. Because in the temple, one man had access to God, the high priest, once a year. But Jesus turns that whole thing upside down. We now have the mediator, Christ. We can worship, and he says, definitions have changed. Right? He also, basically, the third point he makes is that you have always rejected God's representatives. Right? Always. From the way that the brothers sold Joseph into slavery, to the way that uh, the people rejected the prophets, even to the way the uh, Israelites themselves turned on Moses and God on Mount Sinai and formed a golden calf. Every time God sends someone... You reject them. Not only did you reject the ones that talked about Jesus, you rejected Jesus. And now look what you're doing to us. Basically putting himself in line with those names. Right? You're rejecting those. The final thing that Stephen does, which is really the death blow, if you will, the one that really costs him, is basically says, you all are on the wrong side of God. He reverses the accusation. And he says, you're accusing me of this, but let me tell you something. You are on the wrong side of God. And he tells God's redemptive story, not as a story of redemptive salvation, but he tells it as a a story of idolatrous rebellion. That picture that Stephen tells is not the start to finish picture of a happy kind of holding hands people of God who redeems them and saves them. It's the picture of rebellion. And he basically says, I, I, and the other apostles, we are with Abraham. We are with Isaac and Jacob and Moses. And you are with Joseph's brothers. And you are with those that he sold him into slavery. And you are with those that formed and made the golden calf. You are on the wrong side of God. It's an amazing account. I know it's wordy and I know it's long, but it is amazing. And he turns those tables and he says, you have missed it. Now Stephen is a radical. He is a radical, right? You know what a radical is? It's an extremist, mainly an extremist that is desiring change in the cultural norm or tradition. So a radical is a person that's labeled as an extremist because they have a passion or a desire to see cultural norms and traditions changed for whatever reason. Using this definition, on some level, everyone who surrenders their life to Christ is a radical. At some point, you come into contact with that definition. Because the very nature of Jesus is in opposition to cultural norms. We looked at that a little bit last week. And I started looking at the life of Stephen, and I thought as a radical, as a a radical person, right? There's a few remarkable things I want you to see about his life, and then we'll, we'll wrap all this up. Because I think they're things that we are called to somewhat emulate. The first thing that we see in Stephen is that he was anchored in Scripture. So he told, tells this story because he knew it. He didn't have an Old Testament like you and I have to go, let me explain to you how this all happens from Genesis 1. These are things that he knew and he loved and he breathed them. If I were to ask you right now, not before I just did it, but right now, if you were able to tell me from creation to Jesus to show me a picture of God's redemptive history, tell me the story of redemption. Without having heard what I just did, could you do it? What if I ask you about God's word? 
and what the picture was for the church. Do you know God's word? Are you anchored in scripture? A radical is not someone that stands on the mountaintops and shouts obscenity about change and social justice and radical living. But a true biblical radical is somebody that's anchored in scripture and that becomes their conviction and call. A radical never sees themselves as an extremist. They see themselves as someone who is called and convicted. And Stephen was anchored in scripture. He knew it. He breathed it. He could retell it. He could recount it. He had it memorized, committed. He knew what was unfolding. Most of us, and this is not an indictment, it's just some level true, we have a casual encounter with God's word. I mean, casual. Meaning, if I get around to reading it occasionally on the weekday or whatever, I will. But really, my experience with God's word happens when I do it in church. You don't get to know the heartbeat of God through a once a week opening through, well, in this case, 53 verses, but normally a few, right? You don't get to know God that way. If you are going to be a radical, if we are going to live like this, it has to be this, this love affair with God's word, where I know it and I breathe it and I can retell it. Stephen was anchored in God's word. Stephen was also thoroughly gospel-centered. What I mean by that is this. None of us would have blamed Stephen if he would have said, hey, listen, you guys are a bunch of liars. Quit accusing me of this stuff. Let me tell you why I shouldn't die. Because every single one of us in this room, including myself, would probably do that. We're accused of something wrongly. We're going to defend our great name. We're going to make sure that I don't go to jail or death for this because it's not true. I didn't say any of those things that we would defend ourselves. Stephen does something remarkable. He doesn't defend himself. He basically defends the truth. And he tells us a redemptive story. Being gospel-centered at its very core means you come face-to-face with the, the sort of central call of the gospel, which is death to self. The central call of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that I die to me, my own desires and my wishes, and I surrender my life to Jesus, and his life becomes mine. Paul says that my life becomes hidden with Christ, right? That I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The central call of the gospel is actually a call to die. What Stephen does is he dies to himself in order to uphold truth. He's thoroughly gospel-centered. Like, I don't care what you say about me, but I'm going to set my feet on truth, death to myself. He's anchored scripturally, anchored in God's word, and he's thoroughly gospel-centered. The third thing is that Stephen is He's not afraid to stand up to opposition. Look, on some level, I mentioned a second ago, when we live this way, opposition will come. When you say you're going to follow Jesus and you actually open up God's word and you read the way it calls you to live, it will throw you into opposition of cultural norms. Whether you like it or not, it will put you in the face of them. Because it says radical things about life and about people and about how we live that don't get echoed culturally. And you will be seen at times as intolerant. You will be seen at times as judgmental. You will be seen and labeled all kinds of things that are untrue. But when you follow Christ, you will face opposition. Because light exposes darkness. And Jesus is the light of the world. And when the Holy Spirit dwells in us, we become the light of life. And where the light is, there cannot be darkness because it exposes. And when darkness is exposed, it accuses. If you've never been labeled as a radical at any point in time or labeled as any of those things, you have to ask yourself, what am I exuding as we used last week? Light and darkness exposes and darkness hates it and darkness accuses. 
Well, Stephen didn't go out looking for opposition. He just did what God called him to do, and it came to him. God said, go and preach until Stephen went to the temple and he was teaching people about Jesus, and the opposition came to him. The call of the Christian is not to go stir up trouble, to not go kind of make your mark and be that person that's going to kind of push all the boundaries. Trust me, if you just live for Christ, opposition will come to you because of how you live. The question is, are you willing to face it? Stephen basically said, okay, arrest me. Like, I'll face your opposition and I'll speak truth into it. So most of us, when faced with opposition, panic cower and apologize. Being a radical, an extremist that has a deep conviction and passion to live different than cultural and societal norms doesn't live in a way that apologizes for my belief system. Okay, doesn't live in a way that apologizes for it, but as we'll see at number four, is full of grace. So we know a lot of things about Stephen, but we know he's a man full of grace. Chapter six tells us that he was full of wisdom in the Holy Spirit, that he was a man full of grace in God's power, Right? We even see at that last 15, 6, that he had the face of an angel. Stephen was a man that was full of grace. Now, don't confuse grace with passivity. Right? Jesus was not passive. Jesus was not weak. But Jesus was full of grace. Stephen emulates that. He was not weak. He was not passive. I mean, look at him. You stiff-necked people who've got uncircumcised ears and hearts. Like, don't you get it? He wasn't apologizing. But he was full of grace. And what that means is that Stephen so believed in God's redemptive plan for humanity that even rebellious Israel was not outside of God's redemption. And he so loved people that he would proclaim truth to them even when it was uncomfortable because he wanted them to know it. It was the call of him as a preacher of the gospel. But I won't dilute my words because my words hold life because I want you to know that Jesus can redeem it even in the face of his opposition. All those things, anchored in scripture, thoroughly gospel-centered, willing to face opposition, right? All of those things, but full of grace because he loved God's redemptive story because it was for him and it was for everyone. And he proclaimed it at the top of his lungs. What do you label that thing? You ever been labeled as a radical? Most of us shy away from it, right? Fundamentalist Christians banging their thing reality is a biblical picture of of being a radical is are those things it's not the guy or the girl that goes around and shouts and screams and yells and pickets and does all that it's it's someone that's thoroughly anchored in scripture deeply gospel centered willing to stand in opposition when it comes and it will come but does it full of grace Stephen never went seeking it he just lived truth and it came to him as a church as followers of christ this becomes our call to somewhat live and be labeled as radicals because of our deep desire to live in opposition to cultural norms, both morally and otherwise. So I ask you this, as we look at this redemptive story, one, are, do you understand the word? Are you spending time in God's word? Do you know his story? Is your life built on denying myself and promoting God? Like die, denying to myself, gospel-centered. Am I willing to anchor my life in opposition comes? Am I willing to stand in the face of it? How do I treat people? Grace? Do I desire to see them redeemed and saved? Do I believe that God's redemptive story is for them? Or am I accusatory and judgmental? Okay, don't be weak. Don't be passive. But we live in a way that exudes and bleeds this grace for God's people, this world. 
This is the picture of God's redemptive story, and I want you to know it. Let's pray.